Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today's Monday, September 14th. Oracle stock is up, air quality on the West Coast is down, and we're focused on schools as workplaces. The big news here at my house is that my daughter is finally about to enter fourth grade this week, although a couple weeks later than expected, and not at all how I or she imagined it would be. Two days inside the school building, albeit with only about half of her classmates, and then three days at home, learning through a laptop. This also means her teacher is about to adjust to a very new normal, with fewer kids in the classroom, lots of protective equipment, and a need to address very different learning and emotional needs than she's ever dealt with before. Overall, around 37% of America's public school kids will start this year inside of schools in some form. As for public school teachers, there are around 3.3 million of them, around 8% of which are over 60 years old, not to mention all the school administrators, support staff, and other in-school employees. Today, we want to dig into how teachers are feeling about their new workplace, particularly those who've already been back in the classroom for the past several weeks. What's working, what's not, what's still needed, and what happens if and when a vaccine becomes available. We do that in 15 seconds with Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. But first, this. We're joined now by Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. So, Randy, some schools have been back for five weeks at this point. From teachers' perspective, what have we learned about what does and doesn't work about in-person learning in a pandemic? What we're unfortunately learning about in-person education is that those communities that had resources like space, like private schools, they could tent up, they could open outside. Rural areas could open outside as well. But you're seeing a lot of inequity, particularly since we didn't get the resources that we needed from the federal government, given all the cuts in schools. So you have some places that have had successful reopenings, and but you've had most places with a lot of concern about children's education and still a lot of concern about safety. Most people, if it's safe, want to be back in school, meaning in person in school. But the if it's safe is still a big question mark in lots of places around the country, and not just in places that have denied COVID, but even take a place like New York City, where you know the governor and the mayor have fought COVID fiercely, but there's lots of issues about whether or not the schools have the safeguards. You bring up New York. It's interesting. One of the agreements that the city and the teachers union there reached in order to kind of go back into a hybrid model there was monthly testing of both staff and students. Does that really matter or does that become kind of COVID security theater? It is important in terms of controlling community spread. So I am very much in favor of, frankly, everyone getting tested on a routine basis. And if we had the funding to do it, we would be doing it. That's part of what SUNY is now doing with all the kids in SUNY campuses and what's what, you know, you're seeing campuses do throughout. So it's not theater 
it is real. And it's real because 40% of spread of COVID is asymptomatic. And so ultimately, what that kind of randomized testing does is that it gives you a sense of what is happening in a region, what is happening in a community, what is happening in a school. Would it be better if there was enough tests around that regular folks could be tested the way Donald Trump and Mike Pence are? Yes, of course. But we need to actually protect against the spread of COVID. And if you don't, look what just happened to Israel. They are going under lockdown again. Masks at this point should be available, should be affordable. Hand washing is a question of sinks and soap. Is ventilation the big ticket item right now, potentially? And also time. It takes a while to fix an HVAC system if it's not good. Actually, it's ventilation, it's cleaning. And believe it or not, there is not enough PPE. So if you have special needs kids, you're going to have to have face shields, you're going to have to have gowns, you're going to have to have gloves. So believe it or not, this notion of that, I'm going to give somebody two cloth masks and that's going to be enough. It's not going to be enough PPE. It will be for most though, for most classrooms, for most students, most teachers. Will be if you have a well-resourced system. If you have a system with lots and lots of poor kids, I would say the ventilation issues are the ones that are most understandable and most obvious. But there's also the issues about resources include not only those big six, but making sure that there's connectivity, making sure that kids have Chromebooks. On the resource side, the GOP Senate bill, the so-called skinny bill, which failed late last week, did include a little bit over $100 billion for schools. From your perspective, did Democrats make a mistake killing that, given that $105 billion for schools is a lot more than what they currently have, which is nothing? If the 105 was actually going to go to schools in a real way, then you could have a debate about that. But they poison-pilled the bill in such a way that districts that were on remote education would have no access to the bill. It essentially was jerry-rigged. It was for schools that were going to reopen in person, right? Which is who would need to spend money on the PPE and the ventilation and everything else. No, it was actually saying that you could not even have access to it on a hybrid model unless you open fully. And what it was also nested in that bill was millions and millions of dollars for basically rich folk that basically said, if you have private tutoring or if you have private schools right now, you're going to get a tax credit for all of that. What was clear is that the school issues, reopening schools, has become such a big deal publicly that I was glad that the Republicans saw the number in the House bill and said, okay, we're going to at least on the face of it, match it, if not increase it. But they didn't do any of that. So what we're seeing now, let me just be clear about what we're seeing around the country, that even schools that are opening in a hybrid manner, they're firing paraprofessionals. They're firing the very same people. They're laying off the very same people that you need to help special needs kids. We need huge numbers of substitutes. There's no money to hire substitutes. There's more than what would have been normal retirement because people are scared. There's basically been a 20% cut to districts across the country. Randy, I just want to look forward a little bit. We all hope there will be a vaccine, whether that's in October, December, or February, whenever that is. When there is a vaccine that is FDA approved and is able to start being distributed to essential workers, of whom teachers, I assume, would be part of that. 
Do you believe school districts are going to require that teachers take the vaccine in order to teach? And is that something AFT would support? We would support that. Look, just like we are supporting New York and other places that are making, well, required to teach in school. Correct. In person, obviously. Look, just like we have vaccines that we require kids to take to be in school in normal times, we are supporting the UFT and the New York City local, the Boston local, our higher ed locals who have pushed for having you know, mandatory testing because we know that that is a really important detection device in a virus that's virulent and highly contagious. So yes, we would support that. And let me just be really clear, Dan, we wanna be back in school buildings. Place is important when it comes to education. The reason you have so much happening in terms of remotely is because of the inconsistency of what has happened walking into the summer, the lack of resources, and the lack of federal leadership here. I've said it to you before. I'm going to say it over and over again. When we can make it safe, meaning that you have those safeguards in place that you are preventing virus spread in school, people will want to be in school. Kids need it. Teachers want it. And so that is why we keep on fighting and fighting and fighting to get those safeguards into place and to get confidence around them. Randy Weigarten, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Welcome back. What we're watching today is TikTok. After a wild weekend that left Microsoft out of the running to buy it, and the White House now pondering a proposed deal between Oracle and TikTok's Chinese parent company, ByteDance. The upshot? TikTok is not going to be sold, at least not in the traditional sense. Oracle says it's negotiating to be TikTok's, quote, trusted technology provider, which is a very different thing from being its owner, like Microsoft wanted to be. No details yet on terms, but it would seem to involve Oracle hosting TikTok's U.S. operations and holding onto its data, or at least encrypting that data before feeding it into TikTok's algorithm, which would continue to be owned by ByteDance. As for whether President Trump goes for this workaround or instead goes forward with his threat to ban TikTok, that remains to be seen. Finally, there may be life on Venus. Seriously. A new study published today by the Nature Astronomy Journal reports the detection of phosphine, a possible signature of life, in Venus's atmosphere. Now, this could just be some irrelevant geochemical byproduct, but it's important to remember that scientists do believe Venus used to have vast oceans millions of years ago. We asked Axios space editor Miriam Kramer to explain why this matters both for space exploration and for our broader understanding of the universe. If this does turn out to be some form of life, and that's a big if, but if it is, I think that a lot of scientists would say that life is probably ubiquitous. Life is probably everywhere. I mean, if it can maintain some bizarre foothold in the clouds of Venus and stay there for, you know, potentially thousands or millions of years even, then you've got something that is probably out in the universe somewhere too. I actually had a scientist say to me, there's no reason to believe that we're special. It's been about 30 years since NASA actually sent a dedicated probe to Venus. 
I think that most people agree that this is probably going to create a new era of exploration for Venus. And even if it's, you know, not all about life, it's still this world that's really interesting and bizarre and probably more Earth-like than Mars. I mean, it has these clouds, the surface is incredibly hot, you could melt lead on the surface, it's hard to study. But I think that this discovery in particular is really going to push research toward Venus again in a way that we haven't seen in, in decades. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national Eat a Hoagie Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap. <laughs>